Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of the Talking Taboo podcast. I'm your host Divyan Sharma and in this episode I am going to be talking to Chris Tompkins who is a teacher, a TEDx speaker and a spiritual life coach from Los Angeles, California. He recently released his book called Raising LGBTQ Allies uh, which is one of the first few parenting guides available which have been written from a queer lens and talk about things that parents can do to bring up their kids to be allies to the LGBTQ movement in such a heteronormative world that we live in. So in this book, uh, he has explored the concept of messages from the playground, which essentially translates to the homophobic messages that we receive while we are all growing up and which somehow wrongly uh, stay with us at a more subconscious level when we are adults. So catch us in this episode talking about these messages from the playground wherever you are in the world. Uh, these messages are pretty much the same and catch us also talking about what you can do to be a true ally to the queer community and uh, what does it mean really to be uh, calling yourself an ally to the LGBTQ movement. Hi Chris, thank you so much for joining me today. I am really, really excited to have you on my show and I am looking forward to chat with you. Yes, thank you for having me. It's really good to be here. So, uh, just before we dive into the conversation of um, the topic that we are going to talk about is, is your book, um, How to Raise LGBT Allies, and also generally for people who are watching this, uh, in how to be an ally really to the LGBT community. But before we do that, if you could tell us a bit more about who you are and where you're from so that our viewers can get a bit more idea about your background. Yeah, yeah. So my name is uh, Chris Tompkins, and I... I'm from Los Angeles. Well, I'm originally from Arizona, but I live in Los Angeles and I've, I've lived there for, gosh, about 13 years now. So, um, and I, I teach, I'm a spiritual life coach and I'm a writer. And so this book um, that came out last month, Raising LGBTQ Allies, um, I'm really excited to be able to like talk about it because it's pretty much kind of all my experiences that I've had just as a teacher. I've taught social emotional learning throughout Los Angeles County for the past six years, um, working with youth from ages 10 to really kind of in their early 20s. Um, and then also I've been an LGBTQ advocate for pretty much 20 years since I came out of the closet. Um, so I've kind of merged those and I'm also a spiritual life coach. So I work with people on how to cultivate a spiritual practice, how to redevelop a spiritual practice for a lot of the members of the LGBTQ community, maybe who have a, a negative experience with religion or spirituality. So kind of taking all of those worlds and kind of combining them into this book. Um, so that's kind of my background, a little bit about me and what got me started to, to write the book really. Uh, that sounds lovely and exciting and quite quite adventurous i must say you do a lot of things and you um and and, and especially like now coming to the book um how to raise lgbtq allies which launched last month um it, it's really exciting to see that you yourself belong to the community and therefore you know it's it's your own personal narrative and your experiences that have really found a place in the book but I'm more interested um, when I was reading about the book, I, I'm really fascinated by the fact that there were certain um, very interesting sort of uh, developments at home that, you know, drove you towards writing that book and acted as an inspiration upon which you 
built up more content about you know this this parenting guide and and it's it's phenomenal of how this is you know the first of its kind parenting guide really for you know parents to interact with their kids um right. so so if you could tell me a bit more about what that inspiration was and what those experiences yeah. were that yeah 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 i'd love to thank you um i'm i'm just really excited to be able to talk about this because <clears throat> i really do believe that i'll just kind of start out the gate by saying this is that i really do believe that the lgbtq community is here on the planet with a specific purpose to help raise the consciousness um, of, of the planet. And so I say that because I'm a gay man who wrote a book of, uh, called A Parent's Guide to Changing yeah. the Messages from the Playground. So I remember I was doing an interview a few weeks ago and the person asked me, you know, you're a, you're a gay man who wrote a book for parents, a parenting book. And I really don't take that light you know, because 20 years ago, I don't know if that would have been possible for me to be in the position that I'm in to have parents consider what it is that I have to say. And so really this book came from my experience as a family member in my own family. Um, I'm an uncle, I have five nieces and nephews and I've been out their entire life. And so what happened, kind of the real inspiration for the book, <clears throat> excuse me, is uh, I was actually visiting Arizona. I was, I was, ironically, I was presenting at a, it's called the Equality, Arizona Equality and Justice Conference, which is an LGBTQ specific conference in Arizona, where I'm from. So I took a road trip, drove to Arizona from, from Los Angeles, presented at the workshop, and then I went to my mom's afterwards. Um, and my mom, cause I was in town visiting, she had all my family and my, some of my friends, you know, uh, from where I'm from. And they were all at my house and my nephew who was eight years old at the time ran up to me in front of everyone. We were just kind of casually eating, um, hanging out, talking. And like kids do, when they think of something, they ask the question and then they go about what they're doing. And so my nephew ran over and then whispered, but his version of whispering is talking out loud. So everyone heard. And he asked me if the girl next to me was my girlfriend. And, you know, it was a little innocent question, but it, it, made, it started to make me think, why, like, why did he ask me if I had a girlfriend? I mean, I've been, I'm gay. I have been out his whole life. And so... I noticed everyone in my, around the table, their reactions on their faces. And I started to think about later that night, oh, there must be conversations that people in my family aren't having with kids. So then the next day, <clears throat> pardon me, I started asking around to family members, like, do your kids know that they have a gay family member or do your kids know that they have a gay uncle and and a lot of the parents that I talked to were like oh no my kids only six they don't need to know about that or oh no they're too young to understand or and I was like wait what do you mean because I, I always I always think about what's behind like when someone tells me something I always hear what's behind the question or what's behind the comment so what I started to realize 
is what was behind a lot of these parents' resistance to talking to their kids about sexuality and gender was like, oh, they must think something about this is taboo, kind of like the top, the title of your, your podcast. And, and, and so that means that they must think on a, on a, on a lo certain level that something is different about me than someone who's not gay or LGBTQ. So really the book started out as a letter that I wrote my family. Um, I went home to California. I started to do all this research about childhood development, gender, sexuality. And I basically just wrote an, a letter to my families because I have a big family. And I was like, it's really important that we start talking about this stuff early on because I was six when I first knew that I was gay. And as a young child, I didn't know what that meant. I did know that there was, there was something I had, there was a difference about me than the other children that, that I was playing with. And so what I really encourage people to consider is that the things that we don't talk about, children learn that that must be bad or wrong. And, and, and it's quite interesting, this idea of this, this phrase that you use, benign neglect. Yes. You know, not having a conversation amounts to having a conversation eventually. Yes. And I love how you characterize, you know, the development of homophobia as just being background music that if you, like, it will get to you if you don't pay attention to it. So, so, so yeah, love that. Love, love these ideas of how, you know, it just creeps in. It creeps yeah. In. Yeah. Benign neglect. So just for the listeners, you know, who are listening, benign neglect was actually a policy that was proposed in, in the United States in the civil, during the civil rights movement. So when the United States was really a lot of, um, President Nixon was the president at the time. And so he had an advisor um, who wrote a, a controversial memo. This is part of like US history. And he wrote a memo to the president encouraging benign neglect on the issue of race in the United States. And basically what that memo said is, let's just ignore what's going on. We don't want to deal with this. This is a bit, this is a problem of the South. Like let's let them handle it, which was a horrible, a horrible thing um, for the White House, especially the, the president to just turn a blind eye to what was going on. And so I remember going to a lecture years ago um, with a woman, her name's Marion Williamson. And I don't know if you've heard of her, but she's a, like a spiritual teacher and um, she's just really well known. She's written a lot of books. Um, and she, I, I went to a lecture and she at that lecture said that benign neglect is connected to a lot of the racial issues that we're dealing with in the United States today. Because basically when you, just because something like, just because you turned a blind eye or you turn away from something doesn't mean that that issue is still, you know, going on. And so what I talk about in the book, the chapter that I write about benign neglect is I apply the same principle to not talking to children about gender and sexuality is that not communicating is still communicating. So the silence is, is heard. 
and it's often deafening. And so this homophobic, you know, like you mentioned the background noise, it's kind of this, it is, it's kind of like when you go to the store um, and there's just this background music that you don't really notice, but it just kind of, it, it's, it's just part of the, the environment. And we live in a homophobic society. I mean, in the United States, I, 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 I can't speak for every single country in the world, but I can pretty much guarantee that most countries around the world, the, the dominant culture is homophobic. Yeah. And, and when I say homophobic, I don't mean like, that's one of the things I write about in the book is that it's not outright blatant abuse that happens. Some countries that unfortunately does still happen. I'm talking about where I live in my family. I came out of the closet and my family's okay with me being gay as an adult. But when it comes to having certain conversations with children, they, they feel like it's, it's, it's not okay, which been behind that not okay is the benign neglect, yeah. which children pick up and then they learn from what we don't say. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and um, I like how you characterize it as a problem that is more universal because from where we are from uh, in India, definitely it's, it's not just like a, much larger human rights human rights abuse at, at a bigger scale than the United States possibly, but but also this this internalized homophobia is an equally sort of infectious problem that we need to deal with. But but what I have seen in in my experience is that you know the cisgender heterosexual people generally you know as, as you have uh, rightfully shared uh, about your family they they generally aren't interested or rather they they think it's somewhere irrelevant to their life. If I'm yeah, yeah. So how do you really sort of mend that attitude? And even be before we ask that question, it's important to probably understand why is it important for everyone to even be having this conversation? Because till now we have only characterized queer conversations to be limited to queer people, to to who who this concerns directly, perhaps. But why do you theorize that you know for everyone it's important to be having this conversation? Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good question. So the, I, I really do believe that when it comes to social justice and when it comes to human rights, <clears throat> each, each human rights challenge may look very different on the surface. Underneath it though, is, is the same thing. And it's, 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 the, it's the dominant culture and how oppression works is that there's a dominant culture and then there's the marginalized groups. And so it's really important for the dominant culture to have these conversations because they have privilege that they don't even, they're not even aware of. And we cannot talk about oppression if we don't talk about privilege. And when it comes to cisgender and heterosexual privilege, they, 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 they just don't even realize the impact that they're in a room. When, when I go to my family's you know, house for the, for the holidays and there are all of these people there, when I go to public as, as a child, I was so hyper vigilant because I was in the closet. And so I was constantly 
scanning the room for adults' faces for people to see if I was going to be safe, if, if who I was as a child, if I could express myself fully, the toys that I played with, the, the ways that I expressed myself, that was constantly on my mind. And so I, I learned at a very young age to train myself to fit in to the places that were the dominant, that I learned that were the dominant places that most people just fit in. So unless the dominant group understands that that's what the non-dominant group has to do all the time, just by virtue of walking on this earth, because we, we do unfortunately still live in a world where there are, hier there, there are, there are hierarchies. And so the dominant group has to make room and in, in their consciousness and in their hearts to understand so that the non-dominant group can, can, can show up more fully. Because it's not just the verbal yeah. or, the, or the five senses that we're dealing with. It's the energetic. It's the non-physical. It's the, how, am I how do I feel? And, and when, 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 when a person, a dominant person, like a heterosexual cisgender person can be aware of the fact that they don't, they don't even have to question those things because that's just the dominant, that's just their experience. So when they do start to question, what they do is they start to dismantle that structure. And so when the more people can dismantle that structure, then it's not, it's not a structure that's supporting one group against the other group. Yeah, then, then there, there, there are no groups. Right. And, and unfortunately, you know, we do live in a world where human beings, I, I believe we're human beings having a spiritual, you know, or we're spiritual beings having a human experience. That said, we are living in, you know, as humans. And so we have to operate and we have to um, take concerted action against these systems that have been, you know, in place for a really long time. And one of the things that I, I just, just this week, I've had a multiple, like a few people, re, well, a handful of people reach out to me who are part of the dominant group, heterosexual, cisgender, who have family members who are gay or lesbian or transgender. And they've all messaged me saying that they had no idea that their sibling experienced this growing up. And, and, and that, and so they've reached out to their family member in a way that they haven't before. And, and even that process right there is what occurs when the dominant group starts to consider the privilege that they have. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. It, um, like not having these conversations doesn't just lead to you know, invisibilization of these experiences and um, also to a lot of extent, I, I feel that, you know, just by merely breaking the silence and having the conversation would be beneficial for even the cisgender heterosexual people in the sense that how I see it is that it creates, it, it creates a more loving society, it creates a more caring society, it creates a society that is more creative 
and yes. is able to use its potential to the fullest extent and as you say it creates more loving families because then you are able to fully accept someone who is there and even not in your family even generally to have an open mind and just you know in your day to day interaction to be accepting more because you know the world is full of differences one way or right. the other right but, but i want to come to this idea that uh, how you characterize it uh, as being relevant to everyone is these messages from the playground the phrase that you use in your book um which is about how uh, you know parents should be mindful of the messages that their kids are receiving from the playground uh because you know uh, i mean you would explain it probably better so uh why don't i ask you uh, if you can explain what this concept was and and how did it really come across your mind yeah thank you that's a really great question um yeah so the book raising lgbtq allies and the subtitle is a parent's guide to changing the messages from the playground what that means messages from the playground are what i refer to as the subconscious beliefs that we all pick up so how i explain that is i use it as an analogy to help people understand that no matter who we are or where we come from we all play on the same playground like you're in india i'm in mexico city i'm i live in los angeles i'm from arizona but wherever i go i see playgrounds that children play on that look like the ones that i played on as a kid like here i'm in mexico city and literally there's there are playgrounds that look just like the ones that i played on as a young child in arizona and so when i came out of the, so backtrack when i came out of the closet years ago i used to think about some of the challenges that i was experiencing because i came out of the closet and so i was i was open and out to you know family and friends yet there was something that was still going on in my life that i di- i didn't quite understand i'm like why why am i still feeling maybe some guilt or some shame you know i'm i'm out of the closet like i thought that i'd be okay and so what i learned was that even though i'm a gay man and i'm out of the closet i still played on the playground as everyone else meaning that i still picked up those messages about my sexuality that everyone else did and so i i i use them as an analogy to describe the subconscious beliefs because we have our conscious mind and then our subconscious mind our conscious mind is what you and i scheduled this time to talk today you and i consciously made contact we consciously you know those were all conscious subconsciously all of our beliefs are coming into this conversation and unless we make the subconscious conscious the subconscious can still dominate our lives and so messages from the playground i like to describe the playground as an analogy for societal beliefs society and the messages are the subconscious beliefs so you're in india right now and even though we're from completely opposite sides of the the world i'm sure that if we had a conversation about some of the things that you learned as a young child about what it was what it meant to be a boy what it meant to be 
Like, what are the messages that you hear about the LGBTQ community, um, about race, about class? I'm sure that even though we're from completely opposite sides of the world, that we could relate to a lot of the things that we both learned. And so it's an example of no matter who we are, we play on the same playground. And so I use that throughout the book to help parents, caregivers, teachers, especially mental health professionals understand that there are these collective dominant messages that we all pick up. And unless we're consciously aware of them, then they still contribute to how we parent, to how we teach, to how we interact with one another. Well, that's, that's such a unique idea. And um, it really goes down to the main point of how, you know, socialization begins the moment you're born. And yes. until you are adult enough to even understand, appreciate, you have already well-formed opinions, contrary to what adults would like to believe. But you do have opinions, you do have, you know, sexual urges, and you um, do have all those sort of implicit bias and judgments and um, yeah, uh, about the LGBT community. And uh, thank you for that idea, really. I've learned a lot from that personally. Um, but I want to now ask you um, something that I should have done uh, probably earlier, but you know, the title, uh, get down to the title, how to raise LGBT allies. And the, the, the word allies in and of itself is possibly a heavy word for some people because it, it is a label at the end of the day, which um, may invite a close scrutiny depending on the environment you are in, uh, which is why possibly a lot of people may not want to take on that label. But generally speaking for you, um, how do you characterize uh, being an ally as, and, and for you, what does it mean for someone to be an ally? Is it, is it that you have to walk um, down in the pride parade with a rainbow painted on your face? Or is it, the, is it, is it a, just a peaceful coexistence uh, really? So what does it mean? Yeah for you and, and how to become one more importantly. Yeah, yeah, those are really great questions. Um, <clears throat> yeah, you ask really good questions. Um, yeah, so the word ally, I completely understand and I've heard that a lot. I mean, I, I've been doing LGBTQ advocacy work for 20 years. And so I know that in some circles, some of my friends and colleagues don't like the word ally um, some of my friends and colleagues do. For me personally, I believe that it, for, just to kind of, I think, bring up a, a specific topic is that in the United States, when same-sex marriage was passed, finally, um, the way that same-sex marriage happened in the United States was from a lot of non-LGBTQ people speaking out. And it was from a lot of the people who were not LGBTQ themselves that really helped get that movement kind of in the mainstream. Um, I mean, it was definitely from the work of the LGBTQ community for sure. And very much from their non LGBTQ friends, family members, loved ones. And so what I believe when it comes to like going back to what we talked about earlier, there's the dominant group and then you have the marginalized groups. And that's just how society structures work. Unfortunately, today, maybe down the road, the more we have these conversations, you know, um, 
now they there are certain systems that are set up and so i really do believe that it's not enough for the marginalized group to kind of just do their own work and have structures and systems kind of change it really does require effort from the non-marginalized group and so for me an ally is someone anyone could be an ally I'm an ally to myself. And what that means to me is that I'm consciously being mindful of the structures that are set in place that keep marginalized groups kind of marginalized. So for me, an ally means that I'm consciously, mindfully, and also, and also actively doing work. And, and that's what I really invite people to do with this book is that I, I kind of say it's this dance. I refer to it as like a waltz, kind of like a dance. Like, I don't particularly, I don't dance, but um, I, I think of it like kind of this dance because there, you know, when you dance with a partner, there's kind of a give and a take and a flow and a back and forth. And so for me, what an ally allyship means is that I'm doing the work within myself and then I'm taking action out in the world doing the work within myself and then taking action. So it's not just one, it's not just the other, it's both. And I think that that's what an ally for me is. And, and I think it's important, especially when it comes to talking about certain topics that require us to make a concerted effort. Like you mentioned before we started this conversation, your podcast, this podcast started during the pandemic because you wanted to make a concerted effort on challenging some of the things that people don't want to talk about. And so yeah. to me, that, that's exactly what an ally does. Um, no, that, that's absolutely important to talk about because, um, you know, the way you put it in the United States of how, you know, the concerted action came from um, allies and a lot of people who were non-queer and being a law student in India, I have also closely followed the development of um, the LGBT community and the gay sex being uh, decriminalized and then criminalized again and then decriminalized. But I mean, I can say one thing that, you know, the first time it was, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the Supreme Court of India overturned in 2014, the judgment of the Delhi High Court, which said if, effectively that, you know, now it's decriminalized, but the Supreme Court in 2014 said that it's, it's a minuscule community. Uh, it's, it's something that we can, you know, neglect and then move on. So I think it's important for everyone to talk about these issues because, you know, the community itself is statistically uh, very, very small, really. And, uh, and, and, and for other reasons, too, that, you know, I mean, it's a circular thing that because there is this kind of internalized homophobia is why we don't have the correct stats yet. But, but I think for this reason, especially, it is important for everyone to talk about and be really talking about this egregious human rights violations that happen. Right. Yes. Yeah. I love that you brought that up because as you were talking, it makes me think about, you mentioned law school. So how change happens if we want to look at it from another perspective, like from a social justice, kind of just a, um, st like studying actually social justice is that you have, you have the macro level, the meso level and the micro level. 
And the macro level is society, society at large. The meso level is laws, like communities, laws, and the micro level is individuals. And so whenever change happens, it happens, it, it, it's con all those three levels are connected. And so, but it's really important is that sometimes change. So for instance, the micro level change that occurs has to come from macro level, like society. And so it's not enough for just the micro level to change. They're all connected. It's, it's, it's kind of like this, uh, it's like nature, it's this ecosystem. And so it requires effort from, from all of the ecological system. So yeah, that kind of, yeah, so like for same, you, you brought up the same sex marriage, you know, kind of law in India. And so on the, on the macro level, when something like that happens, society starts to change, it starts to shift perspectives and then laws start to change. And then therefore people in general, individuals start to feel LGBTQ people are able to adopt as an example. So before same-sex marriage, there were a lot of structures that were in place that weren't allowing queer people to adopt. And so when laws are changed, then families are changed and, and then individuals. So it's kind of this whole system and that's why it requires allies. No, I absolutely agree with, uh, even from a sociological point of view, uh, because I have seen, um, you know, you know, when uh, three, four years ago in India, it was finally decriminalized by the Supreme Court, um, the Gay Sex. And my parents have been quite homophobic about this, but, you know, I've seen them shift from, you know, it's absolutely no, no, it's a Western con con concept to, you know, just possibly giving a minute thought to it and saying that, you know, it, it was judges that, 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 that are very well read and they did it. So possibly there, there's a reason behind it. So I think, yeah, I mean, I agree absolutely that all of these systems are really connected and one feeds into the other and then possibly the bigger change happens. Right, so, yeah. right. Yeah, so I mean, what you just shared about your own parents' belief about gay sex, that, that's an example of the messages from the playground. So even though your parents are from India and, and I've never been to India, I still had that same conversation with my own parents. Yeah. And, 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 and so that's what I talk about in the book is that there are the, so I mentioned earlier that I've been teaching social emotional learning and I actually talk about this in the book, if I could just share this example is so one of the, one of the classes that I teach with the organization I teach with is we have a curriculum and one of the classes is called, who am I? And each, each student, whenever we're teaching this class gets their own journal and they get, um, it, they get a booklet that they work on or work with, with this book, it's theirs. And so one of the classes, this Who Am I class, we invite them to write down on their journal, there are all these prompts, you know, boys, girls, school, love, money, sex, body, my body. And we ask them to write down one or two sentences or one or two things that they believe about each of those topics. It's personal, it's for them. And then they write those down. And then after that, I always, for the purposes of class discussion, I always pick a word 
that's safe to talk about openly. I don't ask about body. I don't ask about sex because those are kind of personal things um, in the classroom, to, you know, for, with, with other students. Um, but I usually pick money because money is a belief that we all have a, a belief about money and it's pretty safe to talk about openly. Um, and usually people have a pretty charged belief about it. So I write about this in my book, but everywhere I've taught this class, there's always one student in my class who tells me that money is the root of all evil. And that is a biblical reference. And the United States was founded on Puritan values many, 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 many years ago. And that those beliefs still course through the veins of many, many people in the United States today and further around the world just because of colonization. And, and so you have kind of these beliefs that get spread out and they become passed down. And so I remember I used an example in the book is I taught a class to a, uh, they were 10, 10 years old. And this little boy raised his hand and said that he believes that money is the root of all evil. And I asked him, I'm like, I don't think that you have a job. <laughs> um, so how could that, I mean, is that really your belief? Like you believe that? And, and he's like, yes, that's my belief. And then I asked him, well, do you want to have a house when you get older? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, do you maybe want to have a car when you drive? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, okay, so maybe do you think that money could be useful and beneficial? And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, and so is that still your belief? And he's like, well, it's actually my mom's belief. She says that all the time. And, and, and that's not even the full sentence, the full sentence in the Bible, which this is a whole separate conversation, but the whole passage in the Bible was to talk about selfishness. And so what, but I use that as an example of how beliefs get misinterpreted and they pass down, they're passed down. And then we take them on without ever questioning them. So taking that example, applying it to gender, taking that example, applying it to sexuality. So for me as a gay person, the word gay is associated in my family with sex, with gay sex, gay male sex. And that has a whole kind of connotation. So what I was finding is that a lot of people equate LGBTQ with sex. And when it comes to children and having conversations and considering that children are LGBTQ, people don't want to go there because they're thinking that we're having to talk about sex. But sexuality is different than sex. And so, you know, that, that could be a different podcast, you know. Um, but I just wanted to bring that up because I think it's important to, these are the examples of the subconscious beliefs that control the things that we do in our lives. And when it comes to parents and, and my, my sister, for example, you know, she associated being gay with, well, they're too young to talk about sex. No, we're talking about sexuality, which is about who, the, who you, as a kid, who you like, who you have a crush on, you know, who, who, you, who makes your heart beat. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely important. And, um, you know, interestingly, in India, we, 
yeah this is this is actually something that i planned on asking you is that um you know we we don't talk about sex at all uh like we we are even further behind probably say our united states because we don't talk about it even until like possibly we we marry our kids off like it, it's never a conversation really um it's not just about age um so yeah i mean before i end this episode and the lovely chatting about you know allyship and as long as we are talking about that um i wanted to ask in the specific context of india and where you know other such environments where there are absolutely zero conversations about sex or sexuality and they are rather yeah. conflated with each other um how do you envision the role of allies or um you know um other lgbtq people or any uh, activists who who are trying to help the community how do we then like it's it's sort of a bottom up question rather than a parenting question but how do we then you know start this conversation because you know it's still perceived here as something which is a disease which is a pathological a uh, disorder and which something which can be cured or a western influence so h- how do allies or anyone really go about talking about these things here yeah yeah that's that, that's a really good question and i think that i mean we, i could do another interview with you about the yeah, importance <laughs> the importance talking about sex because it's not that i don't want parents to consider LGBTQ in a sexual way because that I think we need to have more of those conversations so that we d- we take away the the distorted beliefs about the deviance about you know gay sex and you know that kind of thing when it comes though to talking you know to invite parents t- to have conversations with their children or teachers or you know anyone is that each of us as a human being has a gender and sexuality and that that could be you know you could be asexual you still have the sexuality you could be non-binary that that's still a gender you know you don't identify with the gender spectrum that still is your your experience and so even having the conversation about that is important um and so i really believe that the earlier that we have these conversations with children we actually help them learn to think of their sexuality and their gender as sacred it's something sacred and it's something that we all have and you'd be surprised you mentioned that india is, is not as far along as far as like the united states but you'd be surprised the united states is pretty conservative when it comes to talking about sex and sexuality i didn't have those conversations when i was a kid growing up i know that my a lot of people in my family they're not talking to their kids about those things and it's really important because children have what we do when we have these conversations and it's very it's very complex and i understand and it could be sensitive because what it does is it goes up against all of those subconscious beliefs that are kind of this background music and so yeah. when we have these conversations people's um beliefs start to come up and they start to you know get a little resisted or maybe triggered or um but i think it's really important to consider that as adults it's important to not put our adult construct of sexuality onto children like when i said that i was 6 years old when i knew that i was gay when i say that to adults 
they're putting their adult construct of being gay onto my six-year-old little boy. But as a six-year-old little boy, I, 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 was, I was a kid. I knew that I was gay, meaning that I knew that I didn't like girls. I knew that I, and, and that wasn't about sex. That was about my sexuality. Further, it's important, I believe, that parents and, and people do start to have conversations with kids about sex at an early age, because when we have conversations, going back to you talk, you mentioned benign neglect, is that when we don't say something, children are very intuitive. Children are very insightful. I'm sure that all of us, your listeners right now, if we just took a moment and reflected on our childhood and thought of ourselves when we were little, we were so, we were so intuitive. We picked up on what was, we picked up on when our parents were mad at each other. We picked up on when my, when the teacher, when I said, when I didn't get the right answer just by their expression. So my hope with this book is that we, we help consider the ways in which we contribute to behavior without even realizing it. So when it comes to conversations, you know, my book, like I mentioned about the dance, I, this book is like, you read it and you take it in and there's action to take. So it's kind of like a both and. So there's actually practical like tips, like these are the things that you can do. These are questions, you know, these are suggestions. Um, and this is the work we do within ourselves. Yeah, yeah, so important and so many good unique ideas um, in this book. So could you uh, tell our, quickly tell our readers, uh, our viewers really about uh, where they can find your book and if someone wants to connect with Chris, he's, he's lovely uh, to talk to. If someone wants to connect with you, you know, where, where all they can approach you on what social media handles. Yes, yeah, thank you so much. It's been wonderful to talk to you. Um, the book is available. I don't know how things work like internationally, but it's on Amazon. Um, my publisher, it's on their website, which is roman.com. And then you could just type in raising LGBTQ allies. It's, on, it's available on Amazon, Goodreads, Barnes and Nobles, um, all of those kind of, I guess, bigger websites um, or, or book distributors. It, it's available in Kindle. And next month actually is going to be an audio. It'll come out in audio. I'm hoping for translation. So um, meaning like other countries, you know, to translate it. And then uh, as far as social media, I, my uh, website, Instagram and Twitter, I'm not really big on Twitter, but um, it's a road trip to love. So all one word, a road, a road trip to love. Um, so that's how they could find me. Okay, brilliant. Uh, thank you so much, Chris, for joining me today. It, it was lovely uh, talking to you and I hope that the audience also, you know, gets the general idea that there is a thread of heteronormative subconsciousness that we all are trying to challenge here. And, and that, that is really why they need to read such work by you and, uh, you know, they need to just educate themselves and talk a bit more about things that haven't been talked about. So thank you so much uh, yes. for joining me today. Yeah, thank you, beautifully said. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Talking Taboo podcast. 
If you like our idea and want to support it, do follow us on Instagram at WeTalkTaboo and visit our Facebook page at TalkingTaboo. A simple share and support will go a long way in mainstreaming these conversations and breaking the taboos that we seek to fight. To stay up to date on the show, do follow us on the platform of your choice. We hope you like this episode and see you in the next one.